Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Well, let's turn back again to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, Today's sermons apparently are about weddings. Um, David was speaking this morning about what causes him to tremble, and the passage this evening is about what caused the groom to tremble. And thankfully, the solution to both tremblings are found in our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, this is the last of a series of, I think, five uh, messages on this introductory section in John's Gospel from chapter 1, verse 19 through to chapter 2, verse 11 or verse 12, if you like, that we've called A Week in the Life of the Lord Jesus. And uh, as we've tried to do the calculations I counted up the number of times John uses next, realized that if you arrive at Jesus' house at four o'clock in the afternoon, you're likely to be staying overnight. And we've calculated within this context that this section in John's Gospel uh, worth studying because we tend, I think, perhaps this is just a personal confession, you tend to run on to the bits that really matter the conversation with Nicodemus or the woman at the well or the healing of the blind man or later on the farewell discourse and the crucifixion. But it seems to me what John is doing here is actually giving us a kind of little gospel within the gospel. He wants us to slow down and he's actually preparing us for the message that he will unfold from this point onwards in chapter 2, verse 13, right to, let's say, chapter 20 and verse 31, where he says, I've included these signs that Jesus did so that you may come to believe in him and have life through him. And it is, I think, significant that this little section in chapter 2, verse 11, kind of indicates to us that what we've got here is a miniature of the whole. It's the first sign that Jesus did, and his disciples came to believe in him. And that's set in the context of the whole gospel as a kind of hors d'oeuvre. And the whole gospel is this series of signs that Jesus did are all intended to point you to who he is and to bring you to faith in him. And of course, it's the story of a wedding. Jesus and the disciples have moved from the east bank of the Jordan below the Sea of Galilee. They've moved upwards slightly north of Nazareth, which in these days was a very small town, maybe with a couple of hundred inhabitants And they're arriving uh, in Cana, which was a bigger town, although it now no longer exists. And uh, it looks as though they have come there deliberately because there is a family wedding. 
And John tells us that Jesus' mother was there. Uh, Right at the end, in verse 12, you'll notice not only the mother was there, but the brothers were there. And if you use the English Standard Version, you'll uh, become almost impatient with it for telling you every time the word brothers is used that brothers means brothers and sisters, siblings. So it looks as though the whole of Jesus' family was there, which um, I think we've only one real indication of how many there were. Good trivial pursuit question. How many brothers and sisters did the Lord Jesus have? He had quite a number, and they're all there in town for the wedding, which I think makes it relatively likely that somehow or another the family is connected to the family that is putting on this wedding. And we're all familiar with this story, either because we've read it since childhood or we've been at Anglican or Presbyterian weddings, and it is alluded to both in the old Anglican liturgy and in the old Presbyterian liturgy how Jesus puts his stamp of approval on marriage. But one of the things we may not notice is how brilliant a short story this is. I think in English there are maybe about 230 words. I think they're only, sometimes you lose count, I think they're only about 180 some words in the Greek text. And this whole story, if there was a story that could win the best story in less than 200 words, it would be this story. Because in, in these few verses, John gives to us an amazing drama that takes place in four acts, or perhaps because they're short, in four scenes. Begins in verses 1 to 3 with a wedding devastation. The wine runs out. I visit a city in the United States basically every year, and when I'm there, a friend from the past and I go out for a meal. We always go to the same place, same Chinese restaurant. And the last time we were there, we put in our orders, Chinese restaurant, and once we put in our orders, the sweet lady said to us, we have no rice, (laughs) which raised all kinds of logical epistemological questions in my mind. Can you actually be a Chinese restaurant if you have no rice? The answer is yes, as long as you're prepared to eat the noodles. And of course, we've never forgotten it, but we will go back. It hasn't bankrupted the business. It's given us and perhaps whoever else came before they could run out to Tesco and get the rice. It's given us something always to remember the occasion by, but there are some occasions in life where it is simply not permitted for something to go badly wrong. One of them is funerals, believe me, and the other, of course, is weddings. This is like a small stain on a bride's wedding garment that will be the only thing people at this wedding will remember. And it's pretty clear even from within the passage, never mind from outside in Jewish social customs, in the way the master of the feast speaks to the bridegroom in verse 9, that this is the bridegroom's responsibility. This is like the dinner 
the night before the wedding in the United States, the rehearsal dinner for which the bridegroom's family is financially responsible. And clearly this is in a context where people, as it were, cater the weddings themselves. This is a disgrace, a social disgrace of the first order. This is a blotch on this young couple's whole married life. If uh, you come from some of the islands, uh, we lived for a while on the island of Unst, where the family catered for the wedding banquet. And of course it went on for days on end. You came, you celebrated, you went home, got some sleep, came back, celebrated. There was food and food and food and food and food. And it's this kind of rural community where for the rest of this couple's life, the stigma that they failed in their responsibilities is going to be a mark on their lives. So there's a wedding devastation. And then in verses 3 to 5, there's what looks like a rather animated conversation between Jesus' mother and Jesus himself. There's, I think, a little indication here that somewhere or another the family must have known. The other family, Mary, seems to have been very quick to learn that the wine has run out. She instinctively does what she may often have done if indeed Jesus, um, now at the age of 30, whatever he was, has often given her counsel and advice, helped her along. And she goes to him and tells him the story. And the implication is fairly obvious. It's help Jesus do something. And we find this rather to us strange response of Jesus. Uh, woman, he says, uh, what's that to you and to me? And it's the way he addresses his mother. I don't imagine any of us men would ever have thought of addressing our mother as woman. Uh, if we'd done it at some age in Scotland, we would have got a clipe on our ears. That was before that kind of thing didn't put you in the local jail. Um, but it's the same term he uses from the cross, isn't it? Woman, behold your son. And while it may not be a term of, in any sense, demeaning her, it's clearly, it's got written into it some sense of distancing himself from her. Now, we can be absolutely sure that the Lord Jesus, as he grew up, was obedient to his parents. Luke tells us that. It's a wonderful thing. And that fulfills the commandment to honor your father and mother. But something changes when you reach full age of responsibility. You become your own person, as it were. You are still under this obligation to honor your father and mother, but your father and mother no longer have the entitlement to tell you exactly what to do. Get that? So we shouldn't interpret honor as though the only thing it meant was, you'd better obey me. I'm afraid some Christian parents don't get that when their children get married. There's a transition 
the honor remains, the nature of the relationship changes. And that was, of course, especially true in the case of Jesus. It's not just that the natural relationship has changed, but that Mary is no longer in a situation where she is the divinely appointed guardian for Jesus. Actually, the truth of the matter is the reverse. He is the divinely appointed Savior of his mother. And so he creates this little bit of distance and then adds this, what I think is a a double entendre here. My time has not yet come. That's language in John's Gospel that usually refers to the Father's timetable for him to die on the cross. And doubtless in John's Gospel, as we read it through, we're meant to remember that. But I think in this context, it, it dominantly means, if I do anything, it will be my, by my timetable, my Father's timetable, not mother, by your timetable. And the interesting thing is, there must have been some kind of little hint in that, that he might well do something. And that's indicated to us by what follows. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So if she had understood Jesus to be to saying to her, out of my face, mother. I think it's highly unlikely, psychologically, as well as logically, that she would have gone off to the servants, passed by the master of the feast, and said, listen, if Jesus tells you to do anything, whatever it is, do it. And you can, you can sense something bubbling up here, can't you? You can sense this is... This is one of the places where John is kind of looking out of the narrative and saying to you, you, are you listening? Are you taking in what is happening here? That when you do what Jesus says, even although you have no idea why he is saying it, do it. Because, remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 3, He is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. And that's exactly what he does in the rest of this narrative. So this is, at least in passing, a great word for us to write on our hearts. So there's a wedding devastation. There's this animated family conversation. And then there is Jesus' miraculous provision. Um, These six water pots that are standing there, and I think the reason that John indicates what they are for is also a clue to a message that is being communicated to us through his narrative. And they hold this amazing amount of water, 20 or 30 gallons each. So that's between 120 and 180 gallons. And they're told to draw water and take it to the master of the feast. And by the time he's sipping the water, it has apparently turned into wine. Now, I haven't had one of these uh, flyers recently that tells me 
I can get 12 bottles for however many pounds as long as I join the club and I'm not an expert in wine costs. But um, as far as I can do the calculations, if all this water is turned into wine, the Lord Jesus has saved in contemporary terms about 20,000 pounds. I mean, that seems fabulous, but if you look up the average cost of a wedding these days, it can be pretty expensive. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. And it's an act of divine creation. An act of divine creation. And the amazing thing about it is that apparently Jesus doesn't really do anything. He doesn't touch the water. He just speaks. Entrusting his own sense of what God wants him to do to God. And the situation is saved. And the story ends with a twofold reaction. The reaction of the master of the feasts on the one hand and the reaction of John, the author of the gospel, on the other hand. The master of the feast in verse 10, what does he see? He sees better wine. And of course he speaks as some people do in John's gospel better than he knows. Most people bring out the good wine first and then when we've had enough of it that we've kind of lost our uh, wine tasting discernment, uh, the poorer wine comes out. But you have kept the best wine to the end. And John tells us that what he saw was a sign of who Jesus really is. A manifestation of Jesus' glory, verse 11 and a means of Jesus' disciples trusting him. Happens all the time, we might say. Um, every time Christ is presented, some see bars, others see stars, as the poem says. Some see wine. Some taste wine. Some see Christ and taste the power of his kingdom. And we call this, under the influence of the authorized version translation of the Bible, we call this the miracle at Cana of Galilee. And if I remember rightly, the authorized version always uses the word miracle to describe what happens here. But it's worth noting that in the New Testament, there are three words used for what we usually call a miracle. One conveys the idea of the power that is involved in the event. Another conveys the idea that the event is so remarkable it causes people to wonder. And the third is the word that is actually used here in verse 11 and used later in chapter 20. It's the word that means sign. And that's characteristically how John describes these miracles that Jesus does. They are, he says, signs. And this is very helpful to us because it, it helps us to see through the, 
mistake, I think, that people often make when they're asked, what is a miracle? And the answer that's usually given is it's something that happens contrary to nature. But that's not how the New Testament views a miracle. Miracles in the New Testament are not fundamentally things that happen contrary to nature, but things that happen contrary to fallen nature. Contrary to the consequences of the fall, which of course come into our lives in many different dimensions, spiritually and physically and materially and socially and cosmically. These miracles that Jesus does, as far as John is concerned, should be seen not just as works of power, although they are, and not just as things that cause wonder and amazement, although they do, but signposts that point us to who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And what he has ultimately come to do is to undo the effects of the fall and to bring to a consummation the purposes that God had for humanity before the fall took place. And these signs are always signs in the New Testament, either of the judgment of God on the fallenness of creation and humanity, or the salvation of God for humanity and for creation. They're always at the end of the day like an inbreaking from the future of what Christ will ultimately do when he returns in power and glory and brings in his final kingdom. Just little glimpses of who Christ is, what he has come to do, and what he will finally do. How he will restore and undo what has been caused by the fall in one way or another. And that essentially is what happens here, isn't it? And this is a very trivial event. Um, you know, why would Jesus turn water into wine here when he, he, for example, wouldn't turn stones into bread for himself during his temptations? And the answer is not just because of the thing in itself. He didn't go around weddings financing the wine bill. But he did something here in this community when his family was present, when his disciples were present, as a signpost to who he was, to what he had come into the world to do. And it's for this reason that John will say at the end of the passage, when the disciples saw what had happened, they found themselves truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the things that you'll notice as you've read through John's Gospel is that John has a kind of style of the way he records what Jesus did and what Jesus said. So that often in the context or near the context of what Jesus does, a a miracle, a sign, a wonder, there'll be an indication built into the way in which John tells the narrative, which is different from the narratives of the other three Gospels. 
in which he joins together not just what Jesus did, but what that tells you about who Jesus is. So, for example, Jesus provides food for the multitude. And it's in that context that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus heals the man who is blind as an illustration of the fact that he is the one who is the light of the world. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead as an illustration of the fact that he himself is the resurrection and the life. So I have a question. Why does this not happen here? After all, this is the first of the miracles, and therefore you would expect that in the first of the miracles, John would make it very clear that this miracle pointed to who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. And I think the answer to that is because what John is doing here is giving us a presentation of the gospel, very simple story form, within the big presentation of the gospel. And he's already told us what this sign means. In his prologue to the gospel, the first 18 verses of the gospel set us up for this little proclamation of the gospel in the first week of Jesus' ministry. And since that first week comes to its climax in Jesus showing his glory to the disciples and the disciples believing in him, trusting in him, I think what we need to do is to to go back to the prologue, back to verses 1 through 18 in chapter 1. And obviously we can't do the whole thing. But what I want to do is to pick out just three statements that are proximate to the launching of this first week that help us to understand what it is that Jesus is doing here and what we find in Jesus. He is the one who enters the darkness, says John, the the chaos, and there is chaos here. And he brings light and order and restoration and joy. Now, here are three statements that John makes, and I want to pause on each of them. They're they're in chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. First of all, this. In Jesus Christ, we find grace and truth. Chapter 1, verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now fast forward in your mind's eye, and your imagination to the scene. You're in the house. And what does John draw attention to? He draws attention to six water pots. And he, he doesn't need to do this just for the sake of the narrative. He does this for the sake of the meaning that he sees in what Jesus does in the narrative. He says, the purpose of these water pots was the Jewish rites of purification. And you know, in the Old Testament economy, in the Mosaic economy, um, 
when you did certain things or came in contact with certain things that were regarded as unclean and defiled, you had a, you had a, a law-given responsibility to, to wash, as it were, symbolically wash that uncleanness off of your body. And that's what these pots were for. That's what the water in them was for. But what's enshrined in this narrative is that no matter how much water there is in these pots, the water itself cannot bring restoration and joy to this chaotic situation. But Jesus can. The law, it's sitting there in six big water pots with which you can wash your body, but you cannot with that water wash away the reason you need the cleansing and the reason, the symbolic reason for which that law was given, which was to teach you your defilement and to teach you your need of cleansing, but the water itself couldn't do it. It can't bring restoration. That law came through Moses. And yes, there was a kind of grace in that law because it pointed beyond itself to our need of salvation and restoration. And it it gave hope that somehow or another What God was doing here in giving these symbols was reassuring us that the reality would actually be accomplished by Him. That's why Hebrews says the law was just a shadow of the good things to come. But Christ is the reality. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth which Maybe in this context means grace in truth, grace in reality, came in and through Jesus Christ. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 3 and 4? What the law could not do, because it was weakened by our sinful flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of the flesh of sin and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, what the law wanted to produce but was powerless to produce, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And I think it's almost certainly significant that whereas Moses' first miracle was a miracle of judgment and condemnation, Jesus' first miracle is a miracle of grace, wonderful restoration. In Jesus Christ, we find what the law can never provide and never accomplish, but He promises to do. Second verse in John 1, 14 through 18 is chapter 1, verse 14. In Christ we see the glory of God. No man has seen God at any time, says John, but the only Son from the Father, who is full 
of grace and truth. In him we have seen God's glory. This again is a clear contrast with Moses, isn't it? Remember how Moses says to God, Oh God, show me your glory. And God effectively says to Moses, I show you my glory and you will be utterly consumed in your sinfulness. You cannot see my glory and live. But when he comes in human form, with a human face, when he becomes one with us in the incarnation, the Word made flesh, then as Paul says, we see in Jesus Christ the face of God. And in his face we see glory. Glory is a kind of tricky word to get hold of, isn't it? Um, it, it, in the Bible, it means something like the, the, the physical manifest expressions of the invisible magnificence of the character of God. And sometimes it means the whole. And sometimes it seems to focus in not on the whole, but on, on one particular dimension of God's being. And one of those dimensions in John's Gospel, it comes out, I think, very interestingly towards the end in chapter 17, is that the place where we see God's glory, which of course we see it in Jesus Christ in the cross, is in the love He has for His Son and the love that the Son has for the Father. When we see that, when we, as it were, look into the mystery of the Trinity and see the sheer intensity of the love between these two persons in the unity of the Trinity, as we were praying earlier on today, then we behold the glory of God. And that's why Jesus says, the glory you have given me and your love for me, I've actually given to them. God doesn't give his glory to anyone. He doesn't share his glory with anyone in the sense of his reputation. But what Jesus is saying is, Father, just as you have shown your glory in the intensity of your love for me, that's the glory I'm showing, sharing with them in the intensity of my love for them. And the way in which Jesus manifests his glory here, yes, is, is partly because of his power that is to everyone in this context inexpressible. But perhaps chiefly in the simplicity of his love and care for this bridegroom and his family and their reputation. Jesus wants to hold on to them and to bring restoration to a situation that in a sense was calculated to cause complete disaster. And then there's this third text in John 1.16. So 1.17, the law came through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. 1.14, we have seen his glory. And this is the first place they saw his glory. And then in verse 16, in Christ we experienced, says John, grace upon grace. We have received from his fullness 
or as I think it might be better to express it because it would capture the teaching of the New Testament more easily for us. Not just in His fullness we receive grace upon grace, but in the fullness of Him we receive grace upon grace. It's not, and this is so important for some of us to grasp, it's not that there is Jesus And Jesus has grace in his pockets. And now he hands grace over to you and you've got grace in your hands. Grace is not a substance. That's a very medieval idea. Grace in the New Testament is the person of the Lord Jesus. We have received in Jesus grace upon grace. And you can see that it's at the heart of this narrative, isn't it? I mean, the wine, more wine, fullness of wine, and a sign of the fullness of life that is found in Jesus Christ. And so the whole thing points us to him, points us to the salvation that is to be found exclusively in him. That in him there is more grace for those who believe in him. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 5, 15 to 20? Where sin abounded, grace super bound it. That's true in what he did in history, but it's especially true in who he is for us. Think of ourselves, where sin is abounded in our lives. In Jesus Christ, there is a superabundance of pardon, forgiveness, restoration that not only compensates for our failure, but restores us from our failure ultimately to God's ultimate purpose for our lives. To enable us to feast with Him, to eat with Him who is the bread of life, to drink with Him who supplies the wine of the gospel. And when we come to Him, this is, John is saying, what we find. There was a man standing in the corner who just had the most awful news that he could not provide for these people what was his responsibility to do for them. And then another came along, a kind of substitute groom, and provided for him and for all who belonged to him this fullness of grace and love. You know Wesley's lovely hymn, O Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again, you can sing this hymn every single day, yet once again I seek your face, open your arms and take me in, and freely my backslidings heal, 
and love this faithless sinner still. So at the end of the Gospel, John writes in chapter 20, verse 31, Jesus did many more signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these ones are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And he's not talking about something he had never experienced because he tells us here in this miniature gospel that it was seeing Jesus in this way that had established them in faith and in his fullness. So there's a wonderful message here about who Jesus Christ is and what he provides for his people. And the whole thing is a sign, like a signpost that says, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when we look to him, from his fullness, we all receive grace upon grace. So let's come to him tonight, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time and then in all the tomorrows, and find that this is true.